get myself a chair. Brought back the props. You'll be pleased to uh, be pleased to note. Um, I should just start by saying that I experienced a, a very real miracle this morning, and so did you. We were all confronted by something overwhelmingly miraculous this very morning. The miracle of our existence. This mysterious, inescapable fact that you exist and that you are aware of it. Billions of us, just the same. Sometimes stopping, pinching ourselves and being like, what is this? <laughs> we exist. Like, is, there, is there a meaning to this life? Is it love? That's the correct answer, isn't it? But what, what is love? Is it actually something deeply, ultimately true? Or is it just some kind of beautiful fluke in the, the cosmic stardust out of which we are all made? Look at your hand. If I can trouble you for a little bit of participation. Um, the atoms of which your hand is, is made up. Currently, they're wonderfully arranged you know, as part of your, your hand. Formerly, they were part of a blazing star, apparently, back in the day, before days. Um, it's amazing, this existence. You are a complete star, even you, Matt. Um, we're made of dust, that's what I'm saying. We are doing this um, year of biblical literacy, the tail end of the year we are now in, um, over the summer is doing these threads. So some of the sort of chief metaphors, some of the recurring pictures that happen in the Bible and kind of repeat and echo and, uh, and resound throughout um, the sort of mini library that is the Bible. Um, we're picking up some of these, tracing them through as a way of kind of reinforcing um, the, the journey, remembering uh, some of the shape of the Bible and, and hopefully, uh, it'll just be interesting, actually, when you see some of, the, um, some of these pictures. So two weeks ago, it was temples with Rich. Last week, it was mountains. And it was supposed to be rivers today, but there was a real risk of repeating the, um, the same sort of sermon, which often happens as you kind of... Well, I hadn't really noticed this, but I was like, it kind of makes sense. As you trace these, the storyline of the Bible, actually, where the last two weeks have, have ended up, is in this, this radical accessibility of the presence of God poured out uh, amongst us. This is the sort of, this is the chapter and the story in which, in which we live after Pentecost. Um, and rivers was going to be kind of, you know, much the same when Jesus talking about the streams of living water bubbling up within us and gushing out of us. And, and so I thought we'd change tack and, and go with dust, which will be very different to that, as you'll see. The... Um, this is a pot of genuine All Saints dust. I emptied the beloved Henry vacuum cleaner into this pot. And so if you are a regular attender, chances are that there is some of these hairs here. Um, there's a bit of you in here, and there's a bit of me in here. Um, there's also a bit of the confetti from um, Easter morning in there, very interesting. Um, would anyone like it? We're going to auction it off. 20 pounds? What a memento of your time with our, you know, with the All Saints community, like a bit of us, a bit of each of us, in a pot. Is there enough DNA to play with 
Who do you want to clone? Nice, yeah. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how, how much DNA survives past the Henry um, hoovering process. Um, nobody wants it. Apparently, a large part of dust, I don't know the proportions, you'll have to Google it later, is, is our sort of skin that we're shedding as well. Isn't that lovely? Thought. So it really is you and me in the, in the pot. Dust, that's what we're talking about. We are made of dust. The first mention of dust in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2, just the second chapter of the entire Bible, as it is arranged. Um, it says this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. As you'll know, if you've been around for the year, it would be a mistake to write off some of this stuff at the beginning of the Bible as a bad primitive attempt at, at trying to do science in an ancient world sort of way uh, before we knew about atoms and uh, stardust and evolutionary biology and all of those sorts of things. No, this is a profound comment on the miracle of our existence. This is acknowledging the reality that we are made of stuff, of dust. Acknowledging that we are physical matter, that we are embodied creatures. We sometimes say that we have bodies, don't we? I have a body. It might be more accurate to say, I am a body. We sometimes say that we go about life on earth. Would it be more accurate to say that we, we live in earth? We are at home here. We are part of the system. We're connected to this physical reality, and we lose touch with that at our peril. And so, you know, as we go about our days inside our whitewashed, uh, sterilized, air-conditioned, um, carefully interior-arranged boxes. Sometimes it's good just to go outside, feel the rain on your skin, feel the sand beneath your feet, go swim in the sea till it gets up into your armpits, feel alive, feel connected. It's good for your well-being, these things. Why? Because we are inert. We are bodies. We're part of this thing. Um... We are dust. That, that was point number one. Did it come up? There it is. Boom. Profound. At the same time, this verse at the beginning of Genesis nods to uh, the reality that we're, we're something more than dust. Uh, we're something more than just physical stuff. There's a, there's a mystery about um, who we are as human beings. We are dust plus, you might say. In the previous chapter, um, so the very first chapter of the Bible, which is another poetic creation account, um, it has, in, in verse 26 there, it talks about uniquely amongst all the, all the rest of the plants and animals and, and the stuff that's being created, human beings are described as being made in the image of God, which means that we have this sort of God-reflecting role. In the midst of the whole creation, there's this unique, there's, this, there's, this something, there's, something, there's something special about us. Chapter 2, and the same sort of thing is going on in that verse where it says that God took the dust and breathed something of his life into it, something of his spirit into it. We are dust plus. This is really key to understanding ourselves, um, who we are as human beings. Fundamentally, we are dust and divine. We are not just the physics, the chemistry, the biology. We're graced with something more, something irreducible, something beyond words. There's deeper dimensions to our existence. 
So far, so good. But then in the very next chapter, things go very wrong. Genesis chapter 3. Humanity opts out of its sweetly connected, um, faithful relationship sort of place. And it makes a grab at something superior, something distinguished, something separate. Adam and Eve eat the apple. The judgment on this, this kind of jump out of our station, out of our situation, out of that sweet relationship of, of trust and, and walking with God, the judgment is, is ultimately death. And this death this is framed in the language of dust, interestingly enough. So in Genesis 3.19, it says this, By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. This is God speaking to Adam and Eve in this picture. Since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And from there on in, throughout the, the rest of the Old Testament, the language of, of dust carries with it these connotations of, of death and mortality. So in Job 17, Job says, Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? Psalm 22, You lay me in the dust of death. Ecclesiastes 3, all go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all will return. Elsewhere, if you uh, put in dust into um, Bible Gateway website, something like that, the verses that come up, you'll see that people throw dust over their heads as this sign of, of sadness and mourning and, and repentance. That's what's going on if you ever come here on Ash Wednesday, the last few years. I don't know if you've been here, and we... And Sort of arrange things in a big circle. And as part of the, it's the beginning of Lent, the beginning of this season in the rhythm of the church's year that we enter into the, 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 the mourning, the uh, repentance, this sort of thing is going on. And so, just like in those pictures in the Old Testament, we, we put the ash on your head and, and we go around and we say, um, ashes to ashes. No, that's a funeral. We say, you are dust, and to d- remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Turn away from sin and be faithful unto Christ. This morning I said it the wrong way around. Turn away from Christ and be faithful unto sin. Um, and people laughed, and that reminded me of when um, I realized, ah, that was the wrong way around. I heard it, thankfully. Um, Owen Heaslip, the previous curate, also called Owen, um, so Rich is the vicar on you know, these, these important occasions like Ash Wednesday, it's the vicar who gets to do the, the ash. So he's going around, he does about 50 odd people probably. And then at the end, it falls to Owen, previous Owen, old Owen, to, um, to, to do Rich. And you'd have thought after hearing this thing 50 times, you could get it right. But then Owen Heaslip in his sort of big bearded, authoritative Irish voice, apparently I wasn't there, but you know, straight up said, it was probably, probably about here. Remember your dust, and to dust you shall return. Turn away from Christ and be, and be faithful unto sin. <laughs> and um, I don't, did, did people laugh? Who was that? Excellent. What a good moment. I know how he feels. I, I, the first time it fell to me to uh, ask the vicar, um, I, I lost it as well. I, did, I didn't do a kind of complete flip of the meaning, but I, I, I was like, you'd have thought, you get it, 50 times, and then just, you just got to say it one time, and I made a mess of it myself. So anyway, um, that's what we do. A couple of years back, 
we, as part of that kind of um, acknowledging, remembering that we are dust, remembering our mortality, um, we had a reading from this book by Denise Inge. Denise was a part of this um, community uh, until a few years back when she died, actually on Easter Sunday. And, um, but just she'd been writing this um, uh, previously, and then it was published after her death. And it made poignant reading on Ash Wednesday. And as part of it, part of the book, um, we read this bit before, and I'll read it again. It's quite this vivid picture, quite disturbing, actually, <laughs> just to warn you, of what happens to a human body after we die. When someone's heart stops, stops pumping blood around their body, the tissues and cells are deprived of oxygen and rapidly begin to die. But different cells die at different rates. Brain cells die within three to seven minutes, for example, while skin cells can, can, while skin cells can be taken from a dead body for up to 24 hours after death and still grow normally in a laboratory culture. In the moderate climates of the Western Hemisphere, it takes about 12 months for a human body to rot down to bone. It may take centuries for that bone to become dust. The body has its own intrinsic method of breaking itself down. Microorganisms such as Clostridia and coliform bacteria begin the decomposition process in the intestines before invading other parts of the body. The pancreas, packed with digestive enzymes, rapidly digests itself. Curiously, the organs where life begins, the uterus and the prostate glands, are more resistant to decomposition and last longer. But within a year, all that is usually left is the skeleton and teeth with traces of tissue on them. And it goes on and on. We are dust. We are more than dust, but we will die. And knowledge that we will die is actually clarifying. You know, when you go to a funeral, the gift of that moment for us can be this clarity. And it's clarifying about what are you going to do with this miracle of, of your existence that you've been given? It's limited. It's brief. What are we doing today with this life that we have? So a month ago, what I was doing with this life that I have was on the beach in Frinton-on-Sea in Essex for a summer holiday. Very lovely it was. And um, we were on the beach just one, one time. And this cottage that we were staying came with a, uh, what are they called? Beach shelter hut. Beach hut. Never had one of these things before, as you may tell by my lack of vocabulary around it. Um, but it was great. I fell in love with the shed on the beach, a shed full of beach toys, including some rather nice spades. Anyway, so the tide is coming in, and Karis and Morgan, Karis is three, Morgan is one and a half. Um, the tide's coming in, the time, it's time to build a sandcastle, right? To do the whole moat thing with the water coming in, and this is going to be great. And so we set to work. First of all, we just build up the, the big mounds, and then we try to dig the moat around it, complete with the channel to feed the moat full of water as the, you know, it's all going well. Um, and then this other boy wants to come and join in. And um, at this point, I had the biggest spade. You know, I had the big wooden one with the metal edges. You know that one? Karis had a little plastic one. 
And Morgan, I was just trying to kick a ball over there to get him to run away from the project, because he was going to spoil it otherwise. <laughs> so, but then this other boy, who's about Karis's size, he's also three, four. Um, this was from just a little brief exchange with the parents that I'd had. This was their day on the beach. And he was probably, maybe he'd been to the beach before, um, but he, it would have been before his sort of memory of it. He was just full of wonderment at the beach. This was great. And here I was making this, this sandcastle. And um, you can be quite directive with your own kids, can't you? You know, like, Karis, no, do not dig by there. And do not stand on this carefully arched bridge that I'm making over the moat, you know. But it was a bit like, you can't do that so much with someone else's kid. And I was sort of torn between, am I going to uh, embrace this boy's presence in the sandcastle project? Um, or am I going to be consumed with trying to build the best sandcastle on the beach that day, as I had been previously, as I'm prone to doing that sort of thing? Many people much wiser than me have noted that we spend, often spe typically, we spend the first half of our lives um, with our kind of, what I'm going to call dust management projects, where we kind of try to arrange our stuff, our, get our things together, get our, the sort of ego project going, and um, try to distinguish ourselves and set ourselves up as somewhat superior and, and separate to, to other people and try and stand out from the crowd, try to build the best sandcastle on the beach, that sort of stuff. And then hopefully, as we sort of enter into a, a maturity of love and life and, and becoming who we're supposed to be becoming, actually we begin to lean into more and more into the connectedness we have. So many people will be getting their exam results, um, and that's totally important, and, you know, and that becomes this big thing. But actually, these, these ways that we grade ourselves, grade other people, look to stand out from the crowd, look to be superior. The Bible has a word for some of that stuff, those ego projects. It's sin. The same stuff that was going on back in Genesis chapter 3 when we make this grab at being something more I was hearing someone else talk about um, the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And so the resume, this is sort of another way of getting at what I'm trying to say. These resume virtues are the stuff that we'll celebrate about ourselves on a CV. And the eulogy virtue, virtues are the stuff that those we leave behind would, would want to be able to celebrate about us um, you know, in, a, in a eulogy. And it's quite a different list. On the one, you've got your, um, you know, your A grades, your distinctions, your promotions, your achievements. And on the other one, you've got things like those sacrifices that you made, your faithfulness, your presence, your ability to laugh, your service, your lifting up of others. Someone else said it like this, only when we enter the martyrdom of obscurity Will our ordinary lives be enough? And I won't tell you who that was from. It wasn't me. <laughs> I won't tell you who it's from because that would be sort of ironic, wouldn't it? It would cut against the, the power of the quote, I think. Only when we give up on trying to make a name for ourselves can we get on with really living. Knowing we're going to die is clarifying. What is actually of enduring value? What are you actually arranging your life around the standout of the crowd stuff or the life lived to bless the crowd stuff. 
to look at my amazing sandcastle approach? Or the, hey mate, here's the biggest spade for you, come and join in kind of approach. Mature human life leans into our connectedness, this, this connection of love. And Jesus summarized the, the whole human vocation like this. He said, love God and love one another. And of course, Jesus is absolutely key in any attempt to trace the storyline of the Bible. This, this story reaches its surprising fulfillment um, in him. Ever wondered what the big deal with Jesus is? In a nutshell, it's this, that the God of it all has not abandoned us in the messed up dirt where stuff like Barcelona is going on, where we don't get along because we're kind of... All of the ways in which our human sinful hearts are messing up this world and creating a difficult society to live in where people get trodden down and um, injustice is rife, all of that stuff. God has not abandoned us to it, but actually has stepped right into the midst of the guilty pile of dust that we all live in, in the person of Jesus Christ and walked among us. And it turns out that the God of it all is all about love. He loves us. He loves you. Your little neat arrangement of dust matters to him. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. No bullet point on your CV is going to make him love you more. And nothing that you have to omit from your, your CV so no one knows that about you, nothing like that is going to make him love you any less. You are just loved. It is this gift of sheer grace, and it changes everything. And a mature human life learns to trust that, to be defined by that, to be resourced by that, to be able to not have to try and define, find its own impressive self-definition, but instead enter into that love, dance along to the tune of that love. Psalm 103 says it just like this. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. And this is written before Jesus in the, the chronology of how the Bible was coming together. And it intuits um, something of this, this everlasting, ongoing life and love that is available in Jesus. It says this, For he knows how we, how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. Then the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Do you know this love? This love that links us with eternity. Little us, our brief little lives matter. Your dust matters. It doesn't matter in the sense of rearranging your dust and trying to get ahead. The love of God frees us from all of that dust management. What would be the thing for you in your life, your ego project whereby you have to try and prove yourself, create a name for yourself? For me, it would probably be someone who can do really cool, shiny sermons. And that's the sort of stuff I have to kind of let go of and walk away from and be like, it's not about that. Only when we enter 
the martyrdom of obscurity, will our ordinary lives be enough? And our ordinary lives are what God loves. He loves you. He loves me. Do you know this love? So to finish, I wanted to um, just look briefly, very briefly, at a different way that um, this word dust is used into the New Testament. So Jesus is there with his disciples and he's instructing them to carry on his ministry, to go out and preach to um, other places. And he says as part of his instructions, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake off the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Lost my place then. Um, what's going on there? Dust is, is, is it's to do with association. And, and instructing his disciples, this, this picture of sort of disassociation. If they're not wanting anything to do with this free gift of the love of God poured out and the deliverance and the day of jubilee, all this stuff, actually um, you're to shake your, the dust of that place off your feet as a way of kind of like washing your hands and being like, I don't want anything to do with the, the culpability of that place. If you were a young Jewish boy at about this time, you'd enroll in, in a sort of religious primary school, essentially it would be. And what you'd be spending your days doing week after week after week is, is learning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, off by heart. That's what they did. And then when they got to a certain age, if you were you know, a, um, one of the best at learning the Torah, uh, you got to stay on for, I guess, the equivalent of religious high school. Um, and then you'd start learning some of the other books and the prophets and the, and the Psalms and the writings. Um, and engaging with those. And then at the end of that, which was probably about 14, 15 or so, um, the very best student. Most, most students then went back to their family um, trade. You went back to be a fisherman, you went back to be a carpenter, etc., etc. Um, but the very best, the, the rabbis, who were like the big dogs, um, would say, I think you've got what it takes. I think you've got what it takes to, to be like me to do what I do, that sort of thing. I want you, you, come follow me. And so the, the kid who was the best of the best would follow, would become like a follower of that particular rabbi and would, would literally, you know, the whole, they'd say goodbye to their family, they'd go where the rabbi um, went, they'd um, do what they did, they'd walk where they walked, they'd uh, imitate them in all sorts of ways and they're, and they're kind of shadowing them and trying to become like their rabbi. So much so that a phrase developed, this is the point of all this, um, a phrase developed that was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because, i.e., you're, you're so closely associated with him, you're walking right behind them, that the dust that they kick up back in the you know, dusty ancient Israel sort of paths, um, Palestine, Palestinian dust paths will just be covered over you. That was the sort of nice um, sort of blessing to these guys who were the best of the best and following in the footsteps of a rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's like the flip side of this in terms of this close association. And so then when Jesus comes along to these, people, these, these young men who were fishermen and says come and follow me. Do you understand then why they dropped their nets straight away and then went and followed him? It wasn't like some 
Holy Spirit zombie magnet trance took over, and they're like, yes, there we go. It was like, me? I was a dropout. I was, I was not one of the best of the best, and you're, you're choosing me to come and follow you? This is a wonderful thing. Of course, I'm going to ditch my nets and, and come straight after you and, and follow in your footsteps. That's what was going on. Jesus was saying, blessed are the dropouts. Blessed are the failures. Blessed are you if you've, not been, you've been told you're not so good enough. This is the sort of message that Jesus went around preaching. That the young disciples would have followed in the footsteps of Got some notes on this somewhere. There it is. Blessed are the dropouts, the failures, the, the needy, the guilty, because it is to people like us that Jesus comes and says, Come and follow me. On some level, I believe in you. You've got what it takes, actually, to become like me. All the resources that remain in my love, that's what he says, and then all the resources that we need for this following him to like live into the connectedness to live into these lives of loving God loving other people to live out of all of the competition and the getting ahead and making a name for myself all of that stuff and live into the reality that we're all in this together to reflect something of the love of God into creation as we were always meant to do so may you remember who you are May you know that you are dust, but know that you are loved. And may we find the resources here to live into this great love. May we become covered in the dust of our rabbi. Amen. Let's stand.